Hebrews uh, chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with these same sacrifices, which they offer continually, year by year, make those who approach perfect. For then would they not have ceased to be offered. For the worshippers once purified would have had no more consciousness of sins. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously, saying, Sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, that he may establish the second. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. And every priest stands, ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. But the Holy Spirit also witnesses to us. For after he had said before, this is the covenant that I will make with them. After those days, says the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds I will write them. Then he adds, their sins and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. Now where there is a remission of these, there is no longer an offering for sin. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, you've opened our ears to hear your word. You've put a new song in our mouth to confess your gospel and to praise your name. Father, we are grateful for this work of grace, and we ask that you would bless the work that you've begun in our hearts and cause it to flow to all that surround us. We pray that many would see, fear, and trust in you. We praise things in Jesus' name. and Amen. It is um, a real pleasure to be back here, a privilege to be with you. Um, as uh, Pastor Burroughs already mentioned, we've um, had a long-time friendship with this congregation, and uh, given all of the growth and whatnot in Moscow at Christ Church, I, I normally preach at our downtown service, so when I revisit the uptown service and then I come here, I feel like I see more familiar faces here than, than up in Moscow, so many uh, friends back and forth with Moscow. So it, it is a, a pleasure to be with you all. Um, at Christ Church downtown where I preach, I've been going through uh, the book of Hebrews, so I'm plopping one of those uh, messages out of that sermon or sermon series for you this morning. Um, we're jumping in in the middle of uh, the book of Hebrews. Verse 1 of, this, of chapter 10, uh, we're told this, The law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never, with these same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make those who approach perfect. Hebrews 10 begins with this reminder that the law, and, and I should be really clear, by the law here, he is referring to the Old Testament sacrificial system. He's specifically referring to the sacrificial system. This Old Testament law was a shadow of a future perfect sacrifice, a shadow, um, a, a type, a picture of a future perfect sacrifice. And that future perfect sacrifice had come now as Jesus Christ. We heard this a little bit earlier in the book of Hebrews in, in chapter 8, verses 4 and 5. For if he were on earth, he would not be a priest, since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law. 
who served the copy and shadow of the heavenly things, as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. Hebrews tells us that, that what was what appeared in Jerusalem at this moment that this is written, that Old Testament sacrificial system was a shadow of something that Moses had seen when, when he was on the mountain, the, the, the one true heavenly uh, temple. And what happened in Jerusalem, what was um, in operation in Jerusalem, was a shadow of that. Uh, or, or we also can see this in Colossians 2. Look at Colossians 2. Verses 16 and 17. So let no one judge you in food or in drink or regards a festival or a new moon or Sabbath, which are a shadow of things to come, but the substance is of Christ. These things pictured Christ, but to cling to them, to cling to them once Christ himself had come, uh, would be like uh, a man preferring a picture of his wife over his actual wife. A man who's he's got a picture of his wife or his actual wife. If he prefers the picture over her, there's a problem in the marriage, quite obviously. And and we're told here that the Old Testament uh, temple was like a picture of Jesus. But once Jesus comes, you need to walk away from that Old Testament picture and you need to go to the thing itself. The law was a shadow because it did not actually provide um, actual atonement for sins. It only pointed forward to the coming perfect atonement that would be offered by Jesus Christ. And Hebrews says that you know that it didn't provide atonement because in the law, the sacrifices were repeated again and again. That was the thing in the, it was built into the calendar that these sacrifices had to be performed again and again and again. And Hebrews tells us that the fact that those things were repeated regularly shows that they were ineffective. Look again at at, uh, verse 1. The law, having a shadow of the good things to come, not the very image of the things, can never, with these same sacrifices which they offer, continually, year by year, make those who approach perfect. Okay, They offer them year by year. They offer them continually, and yet they can never make you perfect. Had the sacrifices worked, the sinner would have understood that his sin was taken care of and would have been done with a sacrifice. Verse 2, For then would they not have ceased to be offered, for the worshippers, once purified, would have had no more consciousness of sins. Had the, had the blood of that bull taken away your sins, you would have known you didn't need to go back and do it again. All right? The fact that it was repeated showed that it was only a picture and not the thing itself. So if those sacrifices didn't work, uh, why were they continually performing them at God's command? He points that out here. He says, this is the, uh, in verse 8, these things were offered according to the law. You were doing what you were told. So if you're doing what you were told, and yet it didn't work, why were you told to do it? Um, Because they served as a type, an image, a sign pointing to the reality. That's verse 3. But in those sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. These sacrifices served as a constant reminder. The law was didactic. It was a teacher pointing out to you your need for forgiveness, your need for a Savior. It taught the Israelites about the guilt of their sin and their need for a Savior. But all forgiveness that happened, even in the Old Testament, all forgiveness that happened in the Old Testament era came as a result of Jesus' future work, not as a result of what was happening in the temple. So when, when treated, if you treated the law as an image, it did work. Meaning if you treated it as something that pointed you towards Christ, the, the, the law, these sacrifices, 
uh, worked. They functioned the way they were supposed to. Look back at chapter 9, verse 15. For this reason, He, Jesus Christ, is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death for the redemption of the transgressions under the first covenant, that those who are called may receive the promise of the internal inheritance. That is, those that were in the Old Testament that participated in these sacrifices, that used these sacrifices to look with the eye of faith towards God's coming forgiveness, it functioned as something that brought them forgiveness because it pointed them to Christ. The law, the sacrifices, worked when they were treated as a faithful image. But if you treated it as the thing itself, it did not work. This is chapter 10, verse 4. It is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sin. If you treat it as actual forgiveness for sin, this is the blood that atones for my sin, it did not work because it was impossible for a blood, the blood of a bull or a goat uh, to take away your sin. So Moses, Joshua, David, Isaiah, all of these men who participated in this Old Testament sacrificial system, as insofar as they used it to look forward to Christ, it functioned uh, for their forgiveness. But if you used it as atonement itself, then of course it would not work. Now, Hebrews tells us that this, what I'm saying here, should not have been a surprise to an Old Testament saint. This should not have been a surprise to the Jews of the Old Testament, because even the Old Testament made this clear. And Hebrews does this now in the next section. Look at verses 5 through 10. He's quoting from Psalm 40 to show that what he's saying here is something that they should have understood and had been understood by David in the Old Testament. Um, it would not have been a surprise, and, and Psalm 40 points us out. He quotes the, the text of Psalm 40 in verses um, 5 through 7, and then in verse 8, he, he basically distills from those verses his point. Previously saying, Sacrifices and burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had no pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he might establish the second. The sacrifices and offerings you did not desire, burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure in them. These things did not bring um, forgiveness in and of themselves. What they pointed to was the need for a perfect man, a man who would come and walk perfectly according to God's law. King David knew and proclaimed in Psalm 40 that the sacrifices that he brought continually were only a picture of what God wanted, and that what God wanted was a man who would walk in perfect righteousness, a man who would do God's will, as it says right there um, at at the end of verse 7. Behold, I have come in the volume of the book, it is written of me, to do your will, O God. That one man who would come and walk perfectly keeping God's law. Think of um, Micah 6, the the prophecy there. uh, Micah 6, verse 6 through 8. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before the high God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with with thousands of rams, ten thousand rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justly, to love mercy, to walk humbly with your God. More than all of the sacrifices, what God wanted was a man to walk perfectly before him. God wanted one man that would walk perfectly before him. Remember how all the Old Testament sacrifices all declared the necessity of perfection. 
uh, Leviticus, right at the beginning of Leviticus, chapter 1, verse 3, it tells us that every sacrifice has to be without blemish. There's a, there's a perfection that God requires in what is going to come to him. It always has to be perfect, has to be perfect. But Hebrews says, and this is really interesting, if you read through the book of Hebrews, look for the word perfect or perfection. And, and just kind of underline that every time. And you'll see that that's a major theme in the book of Hebrews is the fact that these, there was an impossibility of these sacrifices, all of which were supposed to be perfect. There was an impossibility of those sacrifices to bring about perfection until you come to the one man who is perfect, Jesus Christ. All right, we're told sacrifices had to be blameless. They had to be perfect. But these sacrifices failed to perfect. If Just as a quick skim through Hebrews, look at um, chapter 7, verse 11. Therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there that another priest should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? Right? If, if perfection had been possible, why, why did we need a new priest? Why do we have Christ coming? Um, or, or look at ch- um, chapter 7, verse 19. For the law, making nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. The law made nothing perfect. Law required perfection, but the law made nothing perfect. Or, or again, chapter 10, verse 1, right where we began. For the law, having a shadow of the good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never, with these same sacrifices which they offer continually, year by year, make those who approach perfect. Um, these are just a few of the places where you'll see that word perfect show up in the, in the book of Hebrews. But the point is, the Old Testament law, though it, it called for perfection, made nothing perfect. The law was like a, a, a ruler, a, a measuring stick that you can stand up and, and let's say the, the law is, is seven foot. The measuring stick is seven foot. If you stand up next to it, it doesn't have the power to impart to you seven footness. All it does is reveal that you fall short. It reveals what you are. It does not make you what it, what it is calling you to. The law did not perfect. It pointed towards the one perfect man who would come. Look at chapter 5. Verses 8 and 9. Though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Referring to Jesus. Okay, so he is describing his life, his, his learning of obedience, his perfect obedience throughout his life. And then verse 9. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Here is the one man who walks perfectly according to God's will. The only one who is perfect. This is the one that David prophesied of in Psalm 40, going back to chapter 10, verses 9 and 10. Then he said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first, that he may establish the second. By that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once and for all. Here is the one who actually is perfect. That's why, again, the law is the shadow. The reality is Jesus Christ. Uh, just a quick aside here. If you think about this, there are many things, um, there are many things in life that I think um, intuitive, intuitively feel like, uh, like there's a great promise to bring about a certain end. Uh, there are many things that, that you can receive that you feel like they're going to take you to a certain uh, place. Um, but, they, but they always leave you emptier than before. 
Okay, they always leave you emptier than before. And when I say that, when I lay that out, then there are certain vices, certain sins that you can think that will always follow that pattern. And I think we tend to think of that's that's how sin works in our life. Uh, you you think of somebody who's given to alcohol and drugs. Um, the the you're drawn to it because it gives you a euphoria on the cheap. It gives you this thrill on the cheap, um, but then uh, an aching emptiness afterwards. An a- aching emptiness afterwards. Sexual sin follows that exact same pattern. But but there those are the vices that we see and they're pretty obvious. But um, look at it a different way for a moment because there are also false virtues that follow the same pattern. False virtues that follow the same pattern. For instance, it's a, it's a good thing to be a hard worker, um, to do well financially, to be um, ambitious, to have, be full of ambition for your success in the business place, to work hard and to succeed, to do well financially. And then, and then also to be responsible with that wealth, to not squander it, to invest it wisely, to be careful with your spending, to grow that wealth, and then to have something significant to pass on to your children and to, so that they start in a place very different than where you started. That's all a, a fantastic and a wonderful thing. Um, and I, I, I think we can even see from Scripture that that right there is a blessing from God. When, when you can become uh, wealthy and do well with your obedience and your faithfulness and have something significant to hand on to your children, that's a blessing from God. Right? But it's easy to take material blessings which reveal to us God's goodness and love for us, but to slowly make that success an end in and of itself. Okay, to make it the, the thing that you're actually working for. And the problem is that when, um, when sin, uh, leaves you empty, when, like, if I, if I go back to the alcohol or drugs or something like that, if you, if you binge on something you shouldn't have, and then the next morning you're, you're, you're feeling terrible because of it, you tend to know exactly what happened to you. Alright, when sin leaves you empty, they, they, they tend to do it, um, pretty quickly. And you know exactly what happened, right? You wake up with a hangover and you kind of know how you got there. You, 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 know, you know how this all played out. It happens pretty quick and it's also pretty clear what happened to you. But when false virtues, um, you know, take over your life, and by false virtues, I don't mean that the thing itself was bad, or obviously to pursue that kind of success is a good thing, but when it starts to take a role in your life that it shouldn't have, and when it takes um, a, a, a sinful place in your life, when those things play out in your life, they tend to take a long time to play out. They tend to play out over decades, not over 24 hours. They tend to play out over a long time. And they, when it's all over, it tends to leave you very confused as to why you feel so empty, why, where, where this ache comes from. The hangover, you know where it came from. But when, you, when your life has been emptied out because you've been pursuing things that were good but put them in the place of Christ, it tends to be very confusing to why it is that your life is empty and there's this ache that is, that is all that is left. Lots of good things can do this to you. Um, as I've described with money, you can have a pursuit of wealth that is seemingly done responsibly. You're not like living a, a Vegas lifestyle or something like that. You're, you're living responsibly. You're tithing. You're being very careful and all of that. And so from the outside, nobody has anything to fault you with. But on the inside, this has become the end of your life. And when, when that is played out and it leaves you kind of empty at the end, it's hard to have an answer for why you feel empty. 
Money can do that. I think we live at a time right now where health and our, and our, our personal wellness has taken that same kind of role. Uh, your diet, your workout, your whole wellness routine, it, it can become an end in and of itself, where it becomes the virtue that you pride yourself on, the way that you take care of your body, the way that you eat, the way you're responsible with all the decisions you make about your health. And, uh, and we can also say, just from the, our own Christian circumstances um, and, and surroundings, we can do this with family as well. Family can become this huge priority, and you spend all of your time raising these kids, but sooner or later, they marry and they move out. We're in the, the middle of this in the Merkle house right now. And, and, and then they're gone. And if that was the only thing that you had, if that was the thing that drove you, it's gone. And, and, and there's this weird ache and you can't figure out where it came from because you felt like you were doing everything obediently. These are all good things. Your, your uh, financial success, your health, your family. These are all good things. And I would say they're all things that point you to the goodness of God. Right when you're when you're sitting, perhaps having your Sunday lunch this afternoon with your family, enjoying the the proceeds of your labor in your health and with your family, what you're enjoying is the goodness of God, and you can look to Him and you can praise Him and you can thank Him for that. But if this picture of God's goodness, if this picture of God's goodness gets put on the throne that only God should take, that only Jesus Christ should sit on. Um, well, that is what you call an idol. That's what you call an idol. Okay? When, um, because, alright, when you take it, when you take a picture of God and you put it where God Himself ought to be, that is de- the definition of idolatry. It's worshiping a picture where God Himself ought to be. So, so I would charge you, when you, when you find a deep and mysterious ache or emptiness in your life, that's a good sign that that you are um, setting your deep desires on something other than Christ himself. It's something to look for. Christ satisfies. He is the only um, thing that satisfies the deepest ache. And he satisfies because he is the one perfect sacrifice. And you know that he is the perfect sacrifice because his sacrifice, Hebrews tells us, unlike the Old Testament sacrifices, only had to be offered once. Jesus Christ died once and for all, and that tells you that what he did is the only thing you really, truly need. It's the ultimate thing for your life. Um, and Hebrews is actually pretty emphatic about this point, that Jesus died once, uh, seven, chapter 7, verse 27. He, um, referring to Jesus as our high priest, who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the people's, for, for, um, for this he did once for all when he offered up himself. He did it once for all, or in 9, um, chapter 12. Sorry, chapter 9, verse 12. Not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. In 9.28, Christ was offered up once to bear the sins of many. Or in chapter 10, verse 10, the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. There is one completely effectual sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And, and it's, it is only one time because he is perfection. Right? Everything else has to be uh, repeated again and again, and even after multiple uh, repetitions, it still doesn't actually satisfy. But Christ satisfies once and for all because he is perfection itself. Now, 
um, if you if you were to read through the book of Hebrews in one sitting and then sort of set, step back and say, okay, what is this book about? The central argument of the book of Hebrews is the superiority of Jesus Christ over all other options. Jesus Christ is superior to to everything else that is out there. And if you if you walk through Hebrews, opens up with arguing. Um, what about Jesus versus the angels? And then, and then Hebrews concludes, Jesus is better than the angels. Then it says, oh, what about Jesus versus Moses? And, and it concludes, Jesus is better than Moses. And that's the first couple chapters. And then the rest of the book is, what about Jesus versus the Levitical priesthood, the, the priesthood that is descended from Aaron, that is currently over in Jerusalem sacrificing bulls and goats. What we see in Jerusalem, the temple there, and the priests that are sacrificing there. And the rest of the book of Hebrews is that Jesus is a better high priest than Aaron was, than the Levitical descendants in the, in the high priestly line, than any of those. Jesus is a superior high priest. Jesus is better than any other um, contender. So in particular, the priesthood of Jesus is superior to the Levitical priesthood, which was then functioning at the temple in Jerusalem. And, and I think this is <coughs> the, the reason this argument is made is because Hebrews is written at a moment where Jewish Christians, you've got, you've got the gospel preached to a crowd of Jews, they, com, they convert and they come to the gospel, and they are now worshiping faithfully as Christians, but there's this moment where they're tempted to return back to Jerusalem. They kind of want to go back to Jerusalem and be a part of that that sacrificial system that they grew up in. There's this temptation to return. And the author of Hebrews is saying, don't go back. Don't go back there. Um, If you go back, you're, you're settling for something less than what Jesus has given us here. And that's a much larger argument that the book of, of Hebrews is making. To return to the temple sacrifices would be to walk away from the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And, as Hebrews argues, Jesus is better. Um, you see Hebrews um, itself, and this is really helpful when a book will do this for you, um, in, in chapter 8, verses 1 through 2, um, it, it tells us what its main point. And like I said, it's really helpful when, when, the, when the Bible itself says, okay, here is the main point that is being made. So um, chapter 8, verses 1 through 2. Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of, of the majesty in the heavens, a minister of the sanctuary, sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. Okay, We have a superior high priest in Jesus Christ. And to make this argument, um, Hebrews back there in chapter 8 pointed out that this had been prophesied, that we would get a better high priest. Hebrews identifies, um, uh, quoting basically um, James, or sorry, Jeremiah 31 in Hebrews 8. He quotes Jeremiah 31 and the promise of the coming of the new covenant um, to show that, that, that there was a promise, there was a prophecy that we would get a new high priest and this old one would expire. And now in our text today, in Hebrews 10, Hebrews repeats this same quote from Jeremiah 31 in verses 15 through 18. He's repeating that quote that he had already quoted once in chapter 8. Now he is showing how when the coming of the new covenant was prophesied by Jeremiah, included in that prophecy was the promise that the sacrifices would end. That, that we would we would need to walk away from the sacrifices in Jerusalem because the sacrifices would end. And the reason they would end is because full atonement would show up in Jesus Christ, the one perfect sacrifice whose sacrifice does not need to be repeated again and again. Okay, so 
when I, when I lay that out, I would argue that if you've been a, a Christian for very long, I don't think that most of what I have laid out there is terribly shocking news, particularly if you've been in, in a Reformed kind of congregation for very long and had a covenantal explanation of how the Old Testament and the New Testament fits together. This, this idea, the Old Testament uh, law was a shadow pointing to Christ, and Christ comes as the, as the perfect fulfillment uh, of the atonement for sins. That's not terribly shocking news, probably. The coming of Jesus means the Old Testament sacrifices can end. But I do wonder if you could imagine for a moment if you were a first century Jew who had been um, raised, uh, you know, with the temple sacrifices, with with going to um, on pilgrimage to Jerusalem three times a year and participating in the temple sacrifices and thinking, I would say in particular, thinking in terms of um, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> the, the the sacrifice of this animal. And it's blood being poured out, being connected to the guilt of my sin. Um, imagine growing up knowing when you sinned, I need to get to the blood of an animal for this to be dealt with. And, and, and this being a part of your, your regular ritual. Imagine, imagine that. Imagine if you were a faithful first century Jewish Christian having been raised on the ta- temple sacrifice. I think it would be easy for those sacrifices to have created an almost um, like a Pavlovian need for the blood of an animal when you felt guilt. I think of um, when you read the Psalms and you read David um, delighting, delighting in the goodness of God, the glory of God, praising him and delighting in the privilege of being able to bring sacrifices to him. We go very metaphorical with those sacrifices very quickly. But for him, when he's talking about the joy of bringing sacrifice, he's talking about bringing animals and, and making them bleed for his sin. And, and, and even though we know he's looking forward in faith to Christ, you can understand how there becomes a strong association between your guilt and the need for temple blood. The need for going into that, that service and having these, um, these rituals performed. So can you imagine being a first century Jew, believing in the gospel, but hearing the, the good news of Jesus Christ, believing in it, but having this kind of instinct in you that you've been raised with? And it's a little bit hard, I would think, to walk away from that. I can, I can uh, perhaps sympathize a little bit with the, with the pull of something like Jerusalem. When you had a, a ritual that was as powerful um, and, and you know, appealing to all your senses as that temple sacrifice must have been. But Hebrews is, t- is, is clear. It is saying, look, it's not only true now... That you need, that, that those things don't forgive you, that Jesus Christ is the perfect sacrifice. Hebrews says, even back when you were a little kid, growing up in this world, even then it was Jesus that you were looking towards. These things were never providing the actual forgiveness. They were always just a picture pointing you to Jesus Christ. Verse four, it is not possible that the blood of bulls and goats could take away sins. The Old Testament sacrificial system had always been just a shadow pointing forward to the coming of Jesus Christ. And I think it's important to to, um, learn that lesson, that that it is possible in your life to have things that are helpful pictures, helpful tools that God can use to point you to him, that it's possible for those, those tools, those images, those pictures to start to take a role in your life that they shouldn't have. 
And that what you have to do is you have to regularly go back to God's word to get clarity and understand exactly what is going on in your life. I think, um, uh, so, so we have to return to the word all the time, make sure that we're clear about certain theological uh, conceptions like atonement, forgiveness, salvation, all these theological concepts. We need to go to scripture regularly to make sure that we understand how it really works and how it relates to the things that God has given us in this world to point us towards him. Here's one example that I think that that would um, that can be very powerful if, and and dangerous if we get it wrong. Um, what role does uh, a spanking have in your kids' uh, lives for getting um, forgiveness for their sins? Think, think about that for a moment. What role does a spanking have for your kids getting forgiveness for sins? Um, a spanking is a useful and I would say a biblical tool that God has given parents to help teach their kids uh, the seriousness of sins. Proverbs thirteen twenty four. You, um, if you, the one who who spares the rod hates his child. Okay, so it's clear that that it, this is something that is given to us by God that we ought to use to help our children learn obedience. Um, and 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 when you're when you're in the trenches with those little years, it feels like the spanking is like the thing in your life. That's like all that's going on some days, it feels like. Um, however, we need to understand that just as the blood of bulls and goats once taught the Israelite, um, the Old Testament Israelites the seriousness of their sins, that wooden spoon is a tool for you to teach your children the seriousness of their sins. That's what it does. It's, it's this tool that helps them to teach the seriousness of their sins. It disciplines them. It helps them to let go. It helps them to come to forgiveness. It's wonderful in all of those ways. But because it's so effective, because it's so wonderful, it's also really easy for that spanking to have a, a theologically inappropriate category in your life. It starts to feel like the spanking is the atonement. That the spanking is this necessary component in order for a child to come to forgiveness. And we start to thinking of the, the spanking not so much as a tool for discipline, for helping them to come to repentance, but we start to think of the spanking almost like this karma-like rebalancing of the universe, right? Where, where, and, and it's funny because you start to have this, this like calculus in your mind, like that sin gets this many swats, that sin gets this many swats. And if those swats are not given, then the, then the karma is not rebalanced and, and injustice is done. Um, when we start to think like that, uh, we, we've given the spanking a, the wrong sort of meaning and the wrong sort of significance in our lives. Um, a spanking is not necessary in order to get justice. It is not necessary in order to rebalance karma. Spanking is a tool for bringing your child to repentance. It's the blood of Jesus Christ that forgives sins, and it's bringing them that, to repentance that, that, that gives them access to that. And the spanking can help in bringing them to that repentance, but the spanking doesn't rebalance the universe. And it's helpful when, once you do that, when, once you think of it that way, it's helpful because I can think of times with our kids where you can have one kid who, to get to repentance, this could be, you know, a ridiculous amount of spankings and whatnot. And then you can have another kid who, like that, they're, they're, they're there. And, and, you, and it doesn't take forever and it doesn't take that many swats or anything. And then you start to feel like, is this unfair? Is this, is this, um, is this wicked and unequal weights and measures or something like that? No, it's, it's not a problem because your goal is to get them to repentance. It's not to deal out a certain amount of like, um, 
other things to rebalance the karma of the universe. On the other hand, it, go, it works in the other way as well. Let's say you have a kid who disobeyed, you gave him the swats, and, and he's still defiant. He's not repentant at all. All right? And if you say, well, you got the spanking, so we're done. All right? No, no, no. The spanking did not atone for sin. The spanking is to help him get to repentance. You're not done until they actually come to repentance and are truly in fellowship with you and most of all with God. Okay? But you don't want the spanking to start to take this, this, you know, the role of the blood of Jesus Christ or something like that. It's a tool. It's not atonement. It's not a mandatory penalty that must be delivered in order to rebalance the karma of the universe. When you, when you spank your kids, it's really important that you have these kinds of things clear because what you're dealing with is you're, you're instilling in them a conception of the forgiveness of God and how this works. I found that for our kids, the times when we were disciplining them, that's when um, almost all of my evangelizing of my kids did. Well, it was, it was probably two things. It was either when they were getting their spanking or it's when they're receiving Lord's Supper on, on Sunday morning. And, and those two things you, um, tie together very, very closely. And, and it, they provide a perfect opportunity for you to preach the gospel to your kids again and again and again. Help them understand, okay, why are you in trouble? Because you broke God's law. Right? And, and why can you, why is that a problem? Because you explain who God is, who they are, what sin is, and what that means, the consequences of that in their life. And then you explain to them, and now here is why we can, we can fix all of that with the blood of Jesus Christ. You pray with them, their sins are forgiven, and then on Sunday morning, you can remind them of the forgiveness of their sins in, when they're taking the Lord's Supper. They're understanding, Jesus Christ died for you. This is, this is why you got that swat when you prayed, and, and you were forgiven. This is why you can be forgiven, because Jesus Christ is is for you. But you want to point them to the truth of the gospel and make sure that they're clear in the categories in their life. You can have kids who, who later on in life feel like they can't be forgiven unless they've been punished because they start to have a wrong conception of how they get right with God if, they, if they've gotten that all confused when they're being disciplined. Another example of, of how we can do this kind of, uh, get confused on these sorts of things, um, we, we already this morning, we, we got on our knees and we confessed our sins. Um, and, and you do that every Sunday morning in the liturgy. And then the pastor assures you of the forgiveness of sins. What is, what is happening in that moment? It's a lot of, it, I think a lot of people can sit in on something like that and believe that, okay, it's kind of like, um, you know, like a Roman Catholic where you go into the little booth and you tell the priest and then you get your sins forgiven and whatnot. Like there's some sort of exchange that's happening between you and the pastor here. No, we, th- this is not, um, you should not be storing up your sins all week long, you know, storing them all up, not, not repenting, not repenting, because I'm going to repent at church on Sunday morning. And then you get down on your knees, and then you're really quickly trying to rattle off everything that you remember, and probably uh, the, the pastor closes the private confession a little bit too soon. You didn't get through all of them, okay? If you're thinking that you're storing up your sins in order to have it all dealt with right here, well, that's, that's just completely wrong. Right? You should be confessing your sins as they, as they are made aware, you know, as the Holy Spirit brings conviction of your heart. Throughout the week, you should be confessing your sins every time. This is not um, a, a moment where the pastor is holding forgiveness and then giving it to you really quick because it's all inside of his power. No, when, when, we, when you go through confession of sin here on Sunday morning, what this is is, take, is putting in the liturgy something that should be happening throughout the week. And what it does is it helps to apply the worship that is happening here 
to that confession that is happening throughout the week. It's a moment for you to um, perhaps have God lay new things on your heart that you weren't even aware of. That's why you received the word right beforehand to call these sorts of things to mind. It's a moment for you to um, connect your confession of sin to your worship. Um, And it's also a moment to hear the declaration of God's word and his promise of forgiveness. The pastor does not have um, personal authority and decision-making power over which of your sins are forgiven. What he has is the authority and the the commandment from God to declare God's word um, that is promising you your forgiveness. That's what's happening when we confess our sins. But if you get that all, all kind of confused, you could think that you're going through like a Roman Catholic confessional when you come through a, a liturgical service like this. So um, you can think of a lot of other um, ceremonies that we walk through that you want to make sure that you're applying God's word to get clear. I think you could do the same thing with the Lord's Supper. Um, in the Lord's Supper, we do not perform a sacrifice. Jesus is not sacrificed again. We look by faith, through the Lord's Supper, back to that one perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. He shows us Jesus' sacrifice through this right here. Um, so, so you want to make sure that you get clear on all of these things by going to the Word again and again and, and applying it to these sorts of rituals so that you make sure that you have Christ and Christ alone on that throne. There are many other things um, that I think need this kind of work. Um, uh, where, where we need to go to the Word again and again to carefully understand our rituals. Uh, John Calvin said in his Institutes that the human heart is an idol factory. Uh, and I think that that's a very um, insightful um, uh, word there. The human heart is an idol factory. We constantly replace the one true perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ with little images, little replacements, little approximations. And they're so tricky because... Because it, the definition of a picture or an image is it looks like that, right? It, it looks like the thing itself. And it probably has a really useful role in your life if you use it rightly, if you use it to point yourself and your heart towards Jesus Christ. But if you take it, that, that, that picture, and you push Christ off the throne and you put that picture on, That is, again, the definition of idolatry. When you put a picture of Jesus on his throne, that's the definition of idolatry. And Hebrews tells us here, you can tell when you're looking at an idol. You can tell when you're looking at an idol because it always needs more blood. It it always needs more. It says, do it again. Do it again. And you feel a little bit empty and more empty and and the ache grows and grows even though you're doing it again and again and again. Idols need more blood. They need things repeated again and again. Needs another sacrifice. It aches for more and more and more. But when Jesus Christ comes, that ache stops. That ache is done. All right. When Jesus Christ comes, that ache is done. Look at again at verses 12 through 14. But this man after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. From that time, uh, from that time, waiting till his enemies are made his footstool. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. And it's great because for throughout all of this, we've been hearing about these offerings can't perfect, these offerings can't perfect. And then you comes Jesus. He is the one who is perfect. He is the one who is perfect. And then it's not just that he is the one who is perfect. He's the one who makes you perfect. He's the one that gives you perfection. 
It's not just that you're looking at his perfection. You're receiving his perfection. Listen to that again. For by one offering, he has perfected forever those who are being sanctified. You who are in the process of being sanctified, you, you've all kinds of sin still uh, um, showing up in your life, but you are being sanctified, and the fact that you're being sanctified means that you have been, in Jesus Christ, you have been perfected. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for the one true perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ. We thank you for his blood on our behalf. We thank you for sins, for our sins, once and for all, completely atoned for. We thank you for our justification, complete and total, and all of grace. Father, we rest in the grace of this salvation. We praise things in the name of Jesus Christ, and amen.